All right, it's called Hymn to the Evening. I'm sure everyone has this on their playlist, but um, the reason that we're listening to it is that it is being sung by the Oxford Bach Choir, and the Oxford Bach Choir is something that the Inklings loved and that uh, pseudo or almost Inkling Dorothy Sayers, who we're going to talk a little bit about later tonight, uh, sang in this choir. And the conductor uh, is from a famous musical family in England. His brother, Stephen Cleaberry, just retired as the organist choir master at King's College, Cambridge. And this is Nicholas Cleaberry, who is his brother, conducting this. Uh, But if you want to hear some beautiful music, if you go on YouTube and just put in Oxford Bach Choir, there are lots of really wonderful things. Yes, it's like All right, so let me start us off with a word of prayer and we will jump in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the chance to gather in your name. We thank you for the gift of music, of truth, of beauty, of goodness. We thank you for the work of Lewis and the Inklings, and especially for this book, The Screwtape Letters, we pray that as we look through these words this evening, that you would use them not just as something of interest, but as ways to draw us closer to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You said Oxford Bach Choir? Oxford Bach Choir, yes. Thank you. So, as usual, we are talking about how we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil. And you may think, why do we have to go through this every week? But the reason is that if you are like me, you have a short memory. And uh, we don't always remember all of this about being proactive and about these different habits. So we'll go through them quickly. But the scripture verse is one that's so important in orienting ourselves for the battle that we're in. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So, again, why we're studying this, understanding the battle, thinking Christianly, 
learning about temptation, lessons on habits to cultivate, and living a boldly Christian life. And boldly is the important word there, not just a sort of half-hearted, wimpy Christian life, but a boldly Christian life. And we've talked about one of the subtexts all through this book is about habits and how uh, it brings forth the truth of that old maxim that you probably heard from your grandmother, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And what Lewis is trying to say here is that good intentions are one of the worst things that can happen to us. Because if we just have all these good intentions, we can start feeling virtuous. But if we never put any of them into practice, they've accomplished absolutely nothing other than distracting us from the good that we should be doing. So some of the habits we've talked about, connecting, thinking, and doing, focusing on universal issues, the true, the good, the beautiful, this is the set your mind on things above, Uh, not being distracted by the ordinary stream that's coming at you through the media. And I think this is more true in our age than in any time in history. It is so easy to be consumed and to become extremely disheartened by the stream of everything that's coming at us. So spending time in beautiful places, reading things that make you think, really important, exploring the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens, and learning to think Christianly and critically. And then from the second letter, this whole idea about not just embracing Christianity in the terms of intellectual assent, but really as a transformational belief in Christ. Understanding the church at a deeper level, viewing others through the lens of Christ, focusing on the joy of following Christ, not on the day-to-day difficulties, um, and remembering that you need to be transformed. And as part of that, keeping at the front of your mind that you are a sinner, I am a sinner, we are all sinners, who are desperately in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And it's all too easy to start thinking, oh, we're pretty good. We're certainly better than those people over there. And uh, that is the beginning of that slippery slope that leads to, as Screwtape says, our father's house below. So the third letter, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Uh, One of the things that Satan loves to do is to get into relationships and mess them up and let roots of bitterness arise and people get all sideways with each other. And in the body of Christ, we should not let that happen. Integrating your spiritual life and your outward behavior, modeling Christ-likeness, practicing nurturing prayer for others and believing the best about them. This is sort of the the opposite of the bless your heart principle. Oh, Lord, I pray for Sophie because she's such a gossip. You know, those kinds of things. Um, That's not what we want to do. Um, We want to learn to speak life and be gracious and cultivate spiritual humility. And then from the fourth letter, pray with serious, focused attention. This is really hard. Um, Most of us, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I know in my own life, I don't know how it is for you, but... It is so easy to be distracted when you set aside time to pray. And I don't think that's an accident because you're in a battle and the enemy is coming after you because he doesn't want you to pray. 
So it's just like way back in that first letter where we see the enemy planting a thought, oh, you'd better go have some lunch rather than think or pray. And we are all too prone to that. Praying expectantly, believing that the presence of God will be there. Consider your setting and your posture. Uh, this whole idea, we are a culture that is uh, characterized by sitting down. We're kind of the couch potato culture. And so scripture, it's really interesting if you start reading, looking at posture words in scripture. Scripture is all about standing. It is all about standing. It is about being ready it's about being prepared. It is about being girded. Uh, it is about being alert. So we need to uh, wake up, as it were. Um, when you pray, focusing on Christ and his kingdom, not just your list of the things that you want God to do for you. Your list of what you want God to do for you. God cares about every hair on your head. So he does care about those things, but we need to put them in a larger kingdom context. And then being confident that God's presence is with us when we pray, that we're not praying to the wall, that God is there with us. And then in the next letter, bolstering faith and cultivating virtue. Uh, cultivate is a big, powerful word uh, that involves work. Anybody that's ever been on a farm knows that cultivating is a lot more than just throwing a seed out there and then hoping somehow that it will sprout and bear fruit. Uh, it involves work. And then the second thing, crying out to God. When something bad happens, all too often our tendency, especially men probably, is to try to fix the situation. And scripture is very clear that when we get into trouble, the first thing that we need to do is to cry out to God. And as I was saying a little bit in that story I was telling in church, one of the things that Satan loves to do is to tell us that we've messed up too much to cry out to God, <coughs> that he doesn't want to hear from us anymore. And that is a lie. Satan is the father of lies. And so when something goes wrong or we've slipped up, crying out to God is the best thing we can do. Focus on things that are bigger than yourself. Uh, this is so important, and that's why all through the New Testament you see all of this language about the kingdom of God. That as Christians, we are to be consumed about being part of the kingdom of God. Um, understand your mortality. We live in a culture that denies our mortality, that denies death, and because of that, we focus way too much on this life. We don't think about eternity. We don't think about what life with Christ after death means. And if we did, that would change us. Um, avoiding contented worldliness. This is one of the strongest statements in the whole Screwtape Letters book, that if you can get the patient, that's all of us, to the point of contented worldliness, where you're feeling pretty good about your life and you don't really need anything, um, that is the devil's playground. Because at that point, you've cut yourself off from needing Christ. Two truths in that letter. Uh, the devil is actively seeking to fill you with anguish and bewilderment and despair. He is not a neutral party. He's not standing at the trick-or-treat door wanting to give you candy. Um, he is wanting to fill you up with things that will destroy your life. So when you begin to experience those things, it's important to resist. Uh, scripture tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
And one of the best ways to resist is to get with somebody else who is a believer and pray together. And the devil is constantly seeking to stop you from cultivating habits of virtue, which is why accountability is so important in trying to develop habits. Then from letter six, um, dwelling in the present. This is really hard. Uh, We live in a culture that is so future-oriented, and particularly for students, this is really hard. Um, But this whole idea of dwelling in the present is all through Scripture, and it's part of the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount. So very important for us to remember. Um, Another thing here is this whole idea of uh, moving through feelings to acts of obedience, not just loving mankind, but loving real people, the person that's in your path, that God puts in your path. And then this whole idea of keeping your will and your intellect and fantasy straight in your thinking and not getting those things confused with one another. And then from the seventh letter, remembering again uh, that Satan is real and proactive, uh, cultivating extreme devotion to Jesus Christ. One of the main themes in that letter was that extremism is something that the devil loves. Because if he can get you all worked up and passionate about something that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's where all your energy is going to go. And then the next thing that is even better, which is number four from Satan's point of view, is if you can get that extremism sort of commingled with your faith, but it's extremism about a cause, and all of a sudden your faith is a means to that cause, um, he can completely sidetrack you. And then number three, avoid (laughs) factions. Uh, Not that they're factions in our culture right now or anything. Uh, But Galatians is very clear that factions are part of the work of the enemy, the works of the flesh that are contrasted with the fruit of the spirit. So that brings us to letter eight. This is one of the best letters in this whole book. And I could go on and on and on about this, which I will not do, I hope. And, uh, so let's just jump in here. My dear Wormwood, so you have great hopes that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? I always thought the training college had gone to pieces since they put old slub gob at the head of it, and now I am sure. Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly (laughs) fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life, his interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites, all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness 
will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make a good use of it. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use the enemy wants to make of it and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of the soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours. The increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of man is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered and the state of dryness are those which please him best. 
We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table, and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. And this part will sound familiar. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. But of course, the troughs afford opportunities to our side also. Next week, I will give you some hints on how to exploit them. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And before we get into the habits, one of the things that I want to just say about this letter is that there is a deep theological insight here about the difference between God's plan for us and what Satan and the world want to do. Satan and the world will tell you that by chasing after pleasure, by chasing after sensation, by giving in to your feelings, by living out, if it feels good, do it, that you will achieve freedom. But the fact of the matter is because God has made us, when we do that, what we achieve is slavery. We achieve bondage. We achieve addiction. It's just like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Edmund goes into Narnia, and he gets this enchanted Turkish delight, Mm -hmm. which there's nothing wrong with Turkish delight in and of itself. But because this is enchanted Turkish delight, and it becomes what he is obsessed with, he focuses his whole life on getting more Turkish delight to the point that he becomes the white witch's slave. And you see this with addiction, you see it with any type of sin, and what you see in this letter is that Screwtape is saying, we want these patients to become food. We want to totally consume their will. We want to eliminate their individuality. We want to eliminate all the beauties that God has given them and draw them into us and suck all of the life out of them. Whereas what God wants to do, which even Screwtape can see, is he wants to help us to learn what it means to follow him so that he can set us free from sin to be who he truly made us to be, that we can be most fully ourselves, that we can experience the joy that comes from using the gifts that he's uniquely given to us, that he's made no one exactly like us. No one else can do what he has made us for. And there's joy in living in accord with your design. So this contrast is put forth really beautifully in this letter. And I would commend you to go back and just spend some time rereading this letter because it is very, very rich. So some habits out of this letter. Uh, The first one, seek spiritual growth and deeper commitment to Christ in trough periods rather than seek to reclaim a feeling. Now this is much easier said than done. When we get into a time of spiritual dryness, that is very often the time that we are more prone to temptation. It is the time that our spiritual disciplines go out the window. 
that we neglect fellowship, we may not go to our Bible study, we may not go to church. And what we're doing is we are cutting ourselves off from the only thing that can give us life during those periods. So when we are in a trough period, the very best thing we can do is to realize we're in a period that's dry and to try to lean into our relationship with Christ at that point. And this is one of those times that consistency is really important. If you're used to having a long prayer time and you just don't seem to be able to do that, if you can have a short prayer time every day, that will help in these kinds of periods. But the problem for many of us is we live in such an emotional, feeling-oriented sort of culture that when we're not feeling it, we don't do it. Um, I will refer you back to the sermon on Sunday about sloth. Um, when we get into these kinds of frames of mind, idleness and sloth become the way that we live. And so what we should do if we want to really annoy the heck out of the devil is when that trough comes, that should be the time when we call the people we know who are the prayer warriors in our life and say, pray for me, come pray with me. Um, what's the best most encouraging spiritual book that you've read lately because I need to read it? Or what's a passage of scripture that's really meant something to you? Would you share that with me? We need to lean into all those things. And then the second thing, and this, of course, is very familiar from Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to experience freedom in Christ, letting the fountain of life and the Trinity flow over in your life. And this is one of the beautiful things in that letter because there's the whole part about the devil wanting to suck in and for um, God, the enemy, to overflow. And Lewis is a big fan of Athanasius um, and several other of the church fathers who used this image of the Trinity as being this incredible self-fulfilling fountain of life that's just spewing beautiful water of life over and over and over without end. And there's so much of it that it's overflowing. And so the idea is that we as Christians, when we come into relationship with Jesus, we are drawn in not to be sucked in to be eaten as food, but we are drawn into this fountain that is overflowing with life. And so that's implicit in what Lewis is talking about here in this letter. And this whole idea of freedom is so important because Lewis is putting it right in the correct theological context that freedom for the Christian is being conformed to the image of Christ. Because when we're conformed to the image of Christ, we are set free to be who we were made to be, not to be conformed to the mold of the culture and what the culture says is cool. So, again, Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then from Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, look, there's that word again. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, most people, if you say, would you like to submit to a yoke of slavery? Um, they will say, no, thank you, or tell you where to get off. But the fact of the matter is we sign up for that all the time. 
Um, that's what Satan wants to do with the things that he wants to tempt us into, is to get us to submit to a yoke of slavery and not be free in Christ. And one of the yokes of slavery that we, even in the church, are really bad about is what will other people think? Hmm. That is a yoke of slavery. We can be enslaved to what other people may think of us. And it's certainly good to have a little bit of a filter, okay, <laughs> so that you are, you're not doing things that are offensive to people. But when it gets to where you are afraid to be who you really are in Christ because you're worried about what other people will think, that is not a good place to be. So Christ wants to give us that freedom. And then the third thing, I love this image, and it's amazing that this comes out of Screwtape's mouth. Um, he says that God can only woo us. And that's such a beautiful way of looking. And if you, I don't know if you've spent much time in Song of Songs, but there's, it's a beautiful metaphor of the man wooing his beloved that's all about God wooing his church to him. And we forget this. We are such a proactive kind of culture sometimes that we think our relationship with God is all about us. But one of the things that Lewis understood deeply is this verse from John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you'll remember that story from Lewis's conversion after he had had the walk um, at Magdalen College with Tolkien and Dyson late at night, and Lewis said, I could feel the inexorable approach of him who I so desperately wanted not to meet. Mm. And that he knew that God was willing him and that God was after him, but that it was not a forceful thing, but it was, as Mark was saying in the service, a relentless thing. That God does not ever stop wooing. And so the question is, do we ever stop to listen for his call to us. So the next thing, this is really difficult. Resolve to carry out from the will alone spiritual disciplines and duties even when you don't feel like it. We are the culture that has given ourselves lots of permission. We have given ourselves lots of permission. If I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. If I don't feel like going to work, why should I? I might not be sick with a fever, but I don't feel like going to work. I'm entitled to have a life. So we, we get all mixed up about this, and we are not very good at carrying out from the will alone spiritual disciplines and duties when we don't feel like doing them. This is one of the reasons that so many employers are desperate trying to hire people that have been in the military. Because when people are in the military, it is almost impossible to survive in the military without learning about discipline and learning about duty. And that's one of the beautiful things that still, it's a very countercultural thing, mm -hmm. even in the midst of this ethos that we live in. And I would encourage you, if you have not been on a military base lately, 
or even go to the Citadel and watch the dress parade or watch the commissioning of a ship or something like that and just watch the discipline. It is such a contrast to the whole rest of our culture. But it is, it is a metaphor of what this is talking about. Because I can guarantee you that at West Point in the military academy, when it is 20 below zero up there on the banks of the Hudson River in New York, and they have to get out and march, many of them wake up and probably think, I don't feel like doing that. (laughs) But nonetheless, they go out there and they do it. Day after day after day, yeah, because the, they the unknown soldier too. They go, they march in front of the unknown soldier twenty four hours a day. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, the army guys are thinking, why didn't I join the navy? Like <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're not going to go there. But the point of it is, they're doing that because of their respect, or if not their respect, their fear of their commanding officer. Well, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely we can develop a little more discipline. And then the next one, well, and this is a great verse from James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's a really important thing to get in your head. Blessed, blessed. And that word blessed, we often misunderstand that because it is, and in the South sometimes it's blessed. Um, but blessed or blessed or whatever you want it to be, that meaning, that word has two meanings. And we often think it just means that God is blessing you. And that's part of it. But it also means, the sort of the other side of that is it also means happy. And the idea is that when you are being who you are supposed to be in the image of God and obedience to him, there's joy that comes to your life from that. So it's not just that God is sending some external thing. There is an inward satisfaction and warmth and joy that happens when you are living this way. So hold on to that crown of life because on Sunday... Don't miss church this Sunday because it's Christ the King Sunday. And that is the culmination of the church year before we go to Advent the Sunday after. And we celebrate that Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I've had a preview of what we're singing on Sunday. You do not want to miss it. So it's going to be great. But it's such an important thing to remind ourselves of because when you, if you're out there in the stream of the media or real life, which is not real life, real life is the kingdom of God, but when you're out in that, it doesn't feel like Christ is the king. It feels like the world is the king. So it is a, it is a tonic to the soul to be reminded on Christ the King Sunday. And then fifth, seek to obey and endure even in the darkest times. And this great verse from Hebrews uh, chapter 10, which is such a great chapter, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And perseverance is an underrated virtue in our culture. Uh, So it's something that is really, really important. 
So there are also two truths about spiritual warfare in this letter. There are actually more than two, but I think these are the most important ones. The first one is this understanding that God loves us and that his service is perfect freedom. Satan wants to destroy that idea out of our heads. Because if we truly believe that, if we truly believe that God loves us like no other, and that God is for us, and that his service, when we are fully aligned with him, that is perfect freedom. If we truly believe that, we won't stray from him. But the problem is we part of us doesn't believe it. And so we sneak out the side door sometimes just to see whether it's true. And we experiment with some other things that don't usually end well. Um, one of the things that's going to be fun later on is Screwtape is going to get in trouble for having said this. Um, because he said something positive about God, and somebody's going to inform on him um, to one of the undersecretaries in the bureaucracy, and they're going to try to get Screwtape in trouble and bring him up on trial for having said something positive about God. So uh, wait for that. That will be happening. And then the second thing, it is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. And this is one of those things that is so deeply true, and none of us wants to hear it, at least if you're like me. Um, The times that we grow in our faith are usually the times that are the darkest and most difficult and most challenging. And I'm not going to say we should wish for terrible circumstances to befall us. But the fact of the matter is, when those circumstances do come, we have a choice about how to react to them. We can either embrace what God wants to teach us through those situations, or we can say, I don't deserve this. How dare God send this my way? And then we become embittered and angry and resentful. And it is all too easy, and I'm sure all of us know people that have gone either one of those directions. It is all too easy to not look for where God is in the midst of the suffering. But it is so very important to do. And C.S. Lewis struggled with Joy's death. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That wasn't an easy thing when you read that. No. He struggled with that. Yep. I think yep. he said, is it, is it God the vivisection? Right, yeah. Quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he <clears throat> struggled deeply with that and wrote all about it and a grief observed and then came through it with a much deeper love for God than he had before he went into it. But he, I think that's such a great example because that um, book is a lot like the book of Psalms in the Old Testament where one of the things that I love about the book of Psalms is it's just all out there. Yeah, the psalmist is not, um, he doesn't have a lot of filters. So he is, he is raging about this thing and that thing, and he just puts it all out there in front of God. And that's really what we are called to do, and then to let God sort through it. But it is, notice that he's leaning into it, and the same thing in A Grief Observed, that Lewis is railing against God and shouting at him and angry, but he's not distancing himself from God or running away or refusing to talk to God. And so this idea of in those trough periods learning to um, seek after God 
and look for what he's trying to teach you is so important. The other thing that's so important in this, um, and we'll see this throughout Screwtape, Screwtape, part of his advice is to keep the patient isolated. If you can keep the patient isolated from real fellowship and from real prayer, the devil can have a heyday. But you'll notice that when he's in fellowship or there are people praying for him, and we haven't gotten to this yet, but you'll see it later, um, Screwtape will start complaining about the impenetrable cloud. <laughs> and what happens is when he's in fellowship or there are people praying for him, there's this impenetrable cloud and they can't see the patient and they can't influence him. And it makes Screwtape crazy because it is so annoying. But it is Lewis's way of telling us that that is such an important protection against the schemes of the enemy. I can't believe he said that, like in the... Uh, where you're saying, like, God is good, and we are we are empty, and he is full ice, like, you wouldn't be converted? Like, you're saying exactly, you're saying how bad you are. Right, right, <laughs> like right. It was, it was, you were reading that, I'm like, how did he not even just convert himself, like, right there? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's pretty, probably why he got in trouble for uh, that yeah, part. It's yep. like, you're preaching about how, or you're talking about all this bad stuff that you want to do, it's like, and, you're, and you know you're doing it. Yep. It's so yep. weird. It is. It is. It's twisted. Yeah. Yes. All right. So we're going to jump to something completely different for a little bit. Um, this, I'm going to do nuggets each week at the end from this symposium that we're at. And the nuggets tonight are from Dr. Crystal Downing. Um, Crystal Downing is a brilliant woman um, who has... Uh, doctorate from the University of California. She is an expert in film studies. She is an expert in medieval literature and an expert on Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is, I think, probably the most underappreciated person in Lewis's circle, but I think she's about to hit it big, as it were. Uh, There are several really important scholars that are working on major biographies of her right now that are all going to come out in 2020. So um, y'all are going to be on the front end of people who know that there's going to be an explosion of interest in Dorothy Sayers. Was she the same time as C.S. Lewis? Or yes, did come after yes her? same time. Okay. They were friends. Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to go to Oxford. Um, they, Oxford considered themselves to be very progressive and having allowed her to go to classes. Um, and she did very, very, very well. But they didn't give her a diploma, because what would a woman do with a diploma? So, um, but she, she did everything that was needed for that, and she was uh, somebody who uh, had a deep and radical conversion to Jesus Christ and decided to turn her scholarship and her very fine mind toward theology. But she's such an interesting person because the thing that most people know her for is she is the, the greatest exemplar, even more than Agatha Christie, of the British murder mystery. So she kind of created that genre um, and did a phenomenal job. A lot of mystery writers think her book, The Nine Tailors, is the greatest murder mystery ever written. And she created a character called Lord Peter Whimsey, Um, who was one of the great fictional detectives. Uh, There were lots of movies uh, done of these books. Um, And she got kind of frustrated with that because she wanted to write theology and people wanted her to write detective stories. (laughs) So she basically kind of 
made a little bit of a Faustian bargain where she would write detective stories to pay the bills and then use the rest of her time to do theology. But she and Lewis became um, very good friends, and Lewis really appreciated her because she was brilliant, but she often disagreed with him. And he loved people that were smart, that disagreed with him, that he could have a healthy, civil argument, debate with. And so they did a lot of that. And they had um, this idea that both of them just loved um, from the Greek words logos and poema, uh, the idea of story, which clearly is so important to Lewis, but was very important to Sayers. And then poema, the whole idea that a thing is shaped in a way to give great satisfaction. And those of you that were here way back um, when we were talking about Tolkien's poem, Mythopoeia or Mythopoeia, however you want to say it, is all about that what makes us most fully human and makes us in the image of God is the fact that we are sub-creators, that we, out of everything in creation, have the ability to make art, to make music, and when we truly live into that in its fullness, we are more like God when we are making those sorts of things than at any other time. And Sayers deeply believed that. She and Lewis really resonated about that. Um, one of the other things that was really interesting about Sayers is she thought she had a heart for evangelism. And she thought, and this was radical in the 1930s, that radio and film were really important fields for Christians to get involved with. And so she did sort of the unthinkable for a woman in that time period and started doing some religious broadcasting on the BBC. And that was also thought of being a sort of low class. It was kind of like being an actress um, was thought of being low class. And so a lot of scholars think the fact that Sayers, as somebody who had gone to Oxford and was from an upper class family, um, did this on the BBC, that that helped Lewis feel okay about doing the Mere Christianity broadcast. So um, she wrote screenplays, she directed films, um, she did all sorts of interesting things. But I think the most important thing that she did in this period was she and Lewis worked together with the guy who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time and said, we need to have a renaissance of Christian art. Um, This is the aftermath of World War I leading up to World War II. And they said the best art needs to be coming from Christians. And so they decided to start this thing called the Canterbury Festival that was headquartered at Canterbury Cathedral. And the archbishop and the dean of the cathedral were helping them with this. And so the first person they recruited was T.S. Eliot. And they had him write his murder in the cathedral for this festival. Sayers and Lewis were on the board of this festival. Um, Sayers wrote the next play after Eliot's. Uh, murder in the cathedral called Zeal for Thy House, uh, which deserves to be better known. But this uh, whole idea um, in that book was all about the integrity of the work and how doing work really well glorifies God and that Christians need to embrace that. The Christians who were artists needed to be about excellence and they needed to be better than anyone else because of who they were. Um, Then she wrote this wonderful book called The Mind of the Maker, uh, which is a great book about uh, sort of the sub-creation idea and how it points us to the Trinity. And Lewis thought this was one of the best books on the Trinity that he had ever read, and he used to quote from it quite frequently. 
And then after that, she wrote uh, an essay that you may have never heard of, but if you had anything to do with classical schooling or classical Christian schooling or homeschooling, this essay is the Bible of that whole movement, The Lost Tools of Learning. Um, and you might have seen the little scuba sign over there. Mm-hmm. I have that essay for you. It's 20 pages long. It is somewhat dense, but it is fire. So um, it is really, really good. If you're concerned about the way education is done in our country, I'd really encourage you to read it. It is fantastic. <laughs> so um, Sayers was not trained as an educator, but as she said, she'd sat through lots of teachers, and uh, that's just as good a way to learn. So um, then another thing that she did that was really interesting that uh, deserves to be better known is that she was approached by the BBC after the success of Mere Christianity, and she was invited to do a radio drama. And they wanted her to do a radio drama of the gospel. Now, can you imagine? It's kind of mind-boggling that culture could have gone so far so fast the other direction. But they wanted a radio drama on the gospel, and so she agreed to do that. And it was a multi-part series on the gospel, Jesus and the disciples, very faithful um, to the gospel story. But what she said to the producer is that when the gospels were written, they were written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was street language. It's not the language of Plato and Aristotle and um, Euripides and all of those guys. It's understandable. It's not ugly language or profane or anything like that, but it is, it is language that people could understand. Yeah. And she said part of the problem, and this is in the 1940s, is that the King James English is not what people speak in the street. So she and her dramatization used normal sort of lower middle class English usage and some American slang. And when the first episode aired, there were literally riots in the streets. And people came with protest signs to Broadcast House in the center of London and picketed the BBC, complaining that this was, Jesus spoke the King James English, and so did the disciples. And how dare they have this sacrilegious thing on the air. And so they leaned on Sayers and said, change the language. And she said, no way. Get over it. And she attracted support from a lot of people. The people who were against it went all the way to Parliament, scheduled a meeting with Winston Churchill to try to get it off the air. Um, But she persevered, and there were thousands of people who were converted to Christianity through this because they heard the message without the veneer of the King James English, and it resonated with them. And this series has been collected now in a book called The Man Born to be King. And C.S. Lewis thought that that was such a great telling of the gospel story and depicted so beautifully the love of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that every year for 20 years from the time it was written until he died, he read that for his Lenten devotional. So it is uh, something that I would encourage you to check out. 
Um, another thing that was really important later in Sayers' life is that both Lewis and Sayers were deeply interested in Dante and in the Divine Comedy. And so Lewis had managed to get both Dorothy Sayers and the sister Penelope, his nun friend, very interested in Dante. And so they both did translations of different parts of it, and they spent a lot of time talking about it. And so for Lewis, that was one of Dorothy Sayers' major contributions was that uh, she was able to popularize, is not exactly the right word, but make more accessible um, the beauty of Dante's work and how full of the gospel that work is when you take it in the proper context. So uh, you heard it here first. There's about to be an explosion of interested Dorothy Sayers. If you want to buy some first editions, do it in the next couple of months before all this other stuff comes out. Uh, but she is another person who was deeply influenced by Lewis and the Inklings, even though she wasn't one, um, and that Lewis really considered her to be his intellectual equal, if not superior. And um, you might remember we've talked a little bit about Lewis's inaugural lecture when he came to Cambridge, uh, where he talked about uh, the fact that he was a dinosaur, and that the best way to learn about a dinosaur is if you've got one that walks into your room, you might want to go look at it and poke at it and see what it does. And he said, here I am. There are not many more of me left. You'd better learn from me while you can. But his pet name for Dorothy Sayers was Sister Dinosaur. And she thought that was the greatest honor that had ever been paid to her. So on that note, our quotation that is from our letter tonight, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to obey when we don't feel like it. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be seduced by the gods of comfort and feeling, but instead to be so on fire for the truth of your gospel that we would be motivated to turn our hearts toward you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of these letters and pray that you would help us to take the truths that are in them and to incorporate them in such a way that our hearts are on fire for you and your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, no class next